Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, uh, please open up to Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. We'll be there through chapter 3 this morning. And if you are 4th through 6th grade, you can follow Bridge 46 sign right now. There's a service for you uh, during the sermon, which I should have remembered to say something about. So they can head out that way right now. Well, talk about hard transitions. My dad loves the movie Groundhog Day. As a matter of fact, it might be his favorite movie of all time. Now, I didn't call him this week to confirm, but... I assume this is his favorite movie by just the sheer amount of times I have sat down and watched it with him. For those who don't know, Groundhog Day is a movie about a man who somehow gets stuck reliving the same day over and over and over again. Whenever he falls asleep or dies, he wakes up back in his bed on the morning of Groundhog Day. Phil, the main character, he must continue to relive this day, the same day, over and over until he finally gets it right. Well, this morning, we have a little bit of a Groundhog Day scenario. Israel, throughout the Old Testament, is going through a cycle of rebellion to God. Then God brings judgment, and the people eventually respond in repentance and revival. And they continue again and again. The nation has been going through this cycle throughout their entire history in the Old Testament. But now, God is going to do something different. Like the movie Groundhog Day, the nation of Israel is reliving the same series of events, but, but unlike the movie, the nation of Israel will never get it right. She can't. So God lovingly takes his bride's hand, and he's going to take Israel through the steps of their relationship, one by one, reliving each part of that relationship. And this time, he's going to win all of her heart. He's going to change her heart completely. He is going to make her right. Why is it important for us this morning to look at a passage like this? Because you need to know that you are a part of this story. You need to know that you're a part of the story, and this story needs to affect your heart. It needs to bring purpose to your life. The mundane of our lives needs to be swept up into this narrative. Our work weeks, our schooling, our household chores, and the raising of our children, every bit of your life is a part of the story, which means that every bit of your life matters. So church, this morning as we read and look at this passage, let's be swept up into the love story that God is telling. Marvel together at what God has done and what he's doing. And together, let's find our place in the story. Last week, we saw how God's bride, Israel, seemingly did everything she could to ruin or destroy her marriage. Israel pursued other lovers. She gave credit to others that which was God's. And maybe most painfully, she'd forgotten her spouse altogether. But God in this passage surprises. Grace is surprising by nature. 
The thing about unmerited favor is that by definition, it shows up when everything else points that you don't deserve it. Israel deserved God's rejection. Instead, God declares that he is going to allure his wife. That is to romance her, to woo her. And the way that he does it is absolutely beautiful. So I want you to look at verse 14 and 15 with me. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. See, God in the passages before this has said that he's going to strip everything away. He's going to take even the good things like Sabbath and feasts. He's going to take it all away for a season so the marriage can be just the two of them again. Husband and wife. And soon after the book of Hosea, this very thing happens. Israel is taken into captivity by another nation. As a nation, Israel swept by the tides of history. Empires come and go wave after crushing wave. Why? Well, God and Scripture had long warned about captivity as a consequence to spiritual infidelity. Throughout all of Israel's existence, they've been caught in this cycle. They, they turn away to other gods. They reject him. God brings some form of discipline. They, they churn and repent. But they've been doing this over and over and over now, finally, when God hands Israel over to another nation, what he said would be the, the ultimate punishment for disobedience, to lead them back into captivity. When God does that, you might be tempted to think, that's it, the relationship is over, God is calling it off. Israel's made it clear it didn't want God, and God has finally given up on her. But that is so, so far from the truth. So, why did God bring Israel into captivity? Because he wanted to remind her of the early years of their relationship. God is taking Israel back into the wilderness. It's as if God is taking Israel back on their first dates. Far from the relationship ending, God is going to start again from the very beginning. So, he takes Israel back to the wilderness. We see in verse 14, we see that he's going to speak tenderly to her. And in verse 15, he's going to provide for her in the midst of the wilderness. Notice the vineyards. And, and so God can provide an abundance, or any so-called God can provide abundance in a land of prosperity, like they were in, in Israel. But only God, the God of the Bible, can provide abundance in the middle of a desert. And so he's stripping them back to just the two of them. He's bringing it back to the early years of their relationship, and he's reliving it with Israel. And here's what it's all leading to. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. See, God is taking Israel back to a time in the relationship where there was nearness. Israel wasn't distracted by her land, power, religion, or treasures. It was a people being drawn out of captivity into a wilderness, and God was dwelling beside them in a pillar of smoke and fire. Now remember, we're, we're looking at an Old Testament prophecy here. These are events that were in Israel's future. 
And in this passage, God is hinting at a second exodus. They might be in captivity, but he once again will rescue her. But this time, something needs to be different. See, they can't just get back in the same cycle. God's always been perfect in this marriage. Everything he's done has been perfect. But Israel has always wandered wandered from her covenants. So this time around, there needs to be something different. So let's look at the part of the verse I conveniently skipped over. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What does that mean? That looks like one of the verses you read in your study plan, and then you just move on. Right? You say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. Maybe if you're studious, you look at the footnote in your ESV study Bible, you still don't understand it, and so you just move on. I'll read some Psalms. The Valley of Achor, it meant a lot. Valley of Achor is a place of significance in Israel's history. It was a part of God's relationship with his people. And to be honest, it's a painful moment in this marriage. It's a painful moment. We find the story in Joshua chapter 7. I won't have the time to read this passage, so let me summarize. Israel has just entered into the promised land for the first time. God has promised that he's going to drive out the peoples that are here. He's going to drive them out before them. And and Israel just saw this happen in a very, very big way. The first city they encountered was Jericho, and God told them to march around it, to play instruments, and do this for several days. And on the final day, when they blew the trumpets and they yelled, the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. And there were spoils and treasures to be found in the ruins. and, And they took those and they dedicated them to God. This is his victory. He has done this. And they they dedicated the things in the rubble to God. But Joshua chapter 7 starts with some scary words. It says that Israel had been unfaithful. Hear that, that marriage language. Had been unfaithful, so the Lord's anger burned against her. What happened? Well, a man named Achan, which means troubler, saw and coveted the treasure in the ruins of Jericho. And even though it was set aside for the Lord, Achan took and hid some of these treasures in his own home with his own stuff. The nation of Israel goes out to battle another city and they are destroyed. I mean, like they they are beaten back, they're routed, and they have to flee. And Joshua, he doesn't know that God's anger is kindling against them, so he goes to God and says, why? Why, God? What is going on? You did that with the walls. And why now are we failing? God reveals that the nation of Israel has sinned against him. They have violated their covenant. Next day, the Lord revealed what tribe to look at. It was Judah, and then which clan, and lastly, which family. And standing before Joshua is Achan. And he confesses that he was the one that broke the covenant. He has sinned against God. The nation of Israel took him and his family into a valley and they stoned them. Then they burned the bodies and piled large stones over them in a heap. And it had been known as the Valley of Achor ever since. That is a hard story. There is much to talk about here, but we are limited by time. So I'm going to focus on just two things in that story. First, sin is far more serious matter than we often treat it. Time and time again in Scripture, we are told that the penalty for sin is death. We often encounter hard passages like this one and wonder, gee, isn't that punishment too severe, too far? 
But the thrust of Scripture is that that penalty is not far enough. That the penalty for sin is far more than physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Secondly, although one man sinned, God holds all his people responsible for the sin. He says multiple times in the story that the nation of Israel has sinned against him, and he won't go out and fight with Israel until they deal with this sin. So why in the world is this story showing up in this passage? Why would God, when talking to his adulterous wife, remind her of such a painful moment in their history? Remember, God is walking them through their relationship step by step. And this time he's going to win her whole heart. Something, or better yet, someone needs to change in this relationship. So God is going to make his bride's heart right. So he says he's going to take the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble, and he's going to turn it into a door of hope. And I believe this is the door that the people will leave captivity through. See, Israel always thought their problem was captivity to other nations right? It's, it's, it, that's the problem. It's the Egyptians. It's, it's the Romans. They, they, they're always focused on the nation, but, but what happened when they left Exodus? Their hearts were not free. They were still enslaved to their sin, and so they kept churning away time and time again from God. Israel as a nation finds themselves in captivity after the book of Hosea, and for hundreds of years, God is going to romance her. He woos her. He prepares his people's heart, and at the right time, he comes to rescue her. A man who never sinned has come for his people, and the story of Achan is churned upside down on its head. Instead of a nation bearing the sin, or we could say trouble, of one man, one man will bear the troubles of everyone. Paul says it this way, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we all may become the righteousness of God. And as Jesus, the only innocent one, became guilty on the cross, he took a punishment far more severe than being stoned to death. He bore the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. And in that moment, Jesus tore a doorway of hope into the universe that his people could escape captivity to sin and be free. Talk about redeeming a first date, huh? That is powerful. God takes a painful moment in Israel's history and he turns it upside down on its head and redeems it. He doesn't go to it and say, hey, I'm just going to make up for this. It never happened. No, he takes that very story and makes it into something new. I don't, I don't know what you came in here this morning with. I don't know the points of pain in your life. The places where there is deep shame and condemnation still. The abortion, the affair, the divorce, the porn, the sin, the betrayal. I don't know what it is that's that door in your heart or in your mind that is shaking and and banging and you're too scared to open it up and see what's on the other side. Maybe it's not even something you did. Maybe it's something that's been done to you. And I don't know what those are, but I know how they feel. They feel like a prison. They feel like you're trapped in a room of darkness and there is no light at all. No windows, no doors, and you are suffocating alone. 
and I don't know how he's going to do it. I'm not going to meddle in that because I have no idea how he's going to take it. But God takes the most painful moments in our lives, the places of our biggest failures, the places of our deepest shame, and he turns them upside down and turns them into doors of hope. So I don't know what he's going to do to your story, but we see in this passage a God who rewrites our stories and turns them into hope. He takes the valley of trouble and makes it the door of hope for his people. And the door of hope in Jesus Christ, the one that leads us freedom from our captivity to sin, what does that do to the bride to walk through that door? It begins to set the bride's heart free to be faithful. Let's look at verse 16 through 20. And then that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baal from your mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. As the bride walks through the door of hope, she finds herself in a new reality. We see that in the use of the word here in that day. This often shows up in the Old Testament prophecy to indicate a future day that is unknown but guaranteed. It's sure. And as we read this, we'll find this day familiar in many ways. Because I believe we're in the midst of living this day right now. See that we find that something has changed in God's bride. Far from last week's passage where God's people had forgotten him, now his people will call him my husband. In chapter 2, verse 5 from last week, it says, I will go, this is Israel, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Do you see the repetitive use of my? These were her true loves. These were the objects of her affections. All of those mys revealed her true love was herself. But now, after God has changed the heart of his bride, she's able to say something wonderful. She's able to call him my husband and no longer my Baal because she now sees her husband and desires him, not false gods. See, God is taking everything. He takes the captivity, he takes the wilderness, and he's walking through it and making it new. And now he makes his bride's desires new. He even takes her her propensity to say my and use it for self-worship. And he takes that very word and turns it into something beautiful. She looks at her husband, God, and says, my husband. It's not about her, it's about him and them together. Not only will she get the name right now, but she will forget these fake gods, these lesser things. Her heart is becoming completely his. Now, I said that this day sounds familiar. I think these are the days we're in. The door of hope has been opened, and as we walk through it, we find that our hearts are becoming free to love rightly. Our affections, which have been disordered, can now be rightly placed on God. But we still experience wrong desires, don't we? The reality is, is that we have not forgotten all the names of Baal in this room, right? We still have disordered 
affections. Sure, we call them different things, but they're still the same gods. The fruit of pride, lust, deceit, greed, covetousness, they all speak of false worship. And when they're present in our lives, when those things appear, you can be certain that something other than God is vying for your heart. Your affections are misplaced. The Baals are a stand-in for any idol that steals part of our hearts, but the difference now is that we can turn away from these idols. We are free in Jesus, free to love him, free to love him alone. Just as we had that word earlier, Darren came up, that there are things that we treasure, that we could hold, we could clutch to ourselves, we could keep close, or we can pour them out and spend them on our true love. We can surrender. We have a choice. What has our heart? Is it my, 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 these things, or is it my husband? So what do we do? What do we do when we know our affections are divided? How do we increasingly call God my husband and forget those former lovers? I think the answer is to find ourselves in this narrative. To let the narrative of this love story grab a hold of your life and be a part of it. To realize that you are in this story. See, we need to reject our sins. We need to say no to them. We need to forget our former lovers. Why? Look at verse 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. See, God declares three times that he will betroth his people. That is to be engaged to them. Just like in the last verse, we saw a hint of a new exodus. Here we see a hint of a future wedding. Now this can be confusing. In this analogy, God's people were already his bride. How can he be engaged again to her and have a wedding? We don't need to get hung up on this. Whether God's people divorce from God when they abandon their marriage to him, or she is just living like they aren't married, God is doing the same thing. God is not only walking his people through the relationship again, but he is redeeming every single part of it. So he will walk his bride through engagement again and have a wedding as he wins his bride's entire heart. So how does this help us fight against our sin? It tells us that our fight matters. Here we see that we are preparing for a wedding. Brothers and sisters, the fight you have today against your sin matters. The, the, the resisting of those desires, the churning away from the things that you want to do, you know that you shouldn't do anymore, you don't want to do, but you still do. The fight on those things matters because you have a wedding to get to. We are leaving behind the vestiges of our sinful life and we're getting prepared for a day that is before us. God knew your sinful heart. He's not surprised by your infidelity. But he is also walking you away from your sins and toward an altar with him. How do we forget our former lovers? We fall deeper and deeper in love with our husband. We rightly attribute to him what is from him and we adore him church as we walk with our husband let's fall more and more in love with him together as we walk towards that altar to turn away from lesser things and put our eyes back on our husband and as you do that as you resist your sin as you fight that as you walk more and more with him hand in hand you will love him more and more 
and you will forget those former lovers' names. And one day you will stand with the Lord at that wedding and you won't even be able to remember their names again. Verse 21 through 23 says this, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. One of the most intimate and exciting aspects of preparing for a wedding is a reality that you will soon have a new home. Not a home for yourself, but a home together with your spouse. Our and I, our first place was an apartment, a small apartment in Altamont Springs. I still have wonderful memories of that cramped, noisy, dingy apartment. As you can guess, not because it was special, but because it was ours. It was the place where our marriage began, and those walls contained our life together. In these verses, in verse 18, we see that God is going to cause the earth to be removed. In verse 18, he says he's going to abolish war and make it a place of safety. And he's going to make the earth a place of abundance. The crops will flourish, the wine will flow, and creation itself will live in peace with one another. God is preparing a home. Not just a home for himself, but a home for him and his bride. I believe this is another moment where we see glimpses of what to come. God is already providing for his people through the earth, but the earth is still broken, isn't it? Right? I mean, you only have to look back one week at a hurricane coming through Florida to say, yeah, the world's still broken. Let alone what we feel in our bodies and the news we get of loved ones. But remember, whenever you see in that day in the Bible, it's a guaranteed future. God is making a new home for his bride. And after the wedding, God will move into this home with his people. That is good news. For the Israelites, when they moved into the promised land, the abundance and riches of the land crept into their hearts. Right? God is reliving this. He's giving his people, his bride, a new promised land, a new home. But when Israel went into their promised land, the abundance had a way of drowning out God. Gifts have a way of replacing the giver. But it will not be so for his bride this time. Instead, we see in verse 23 that not my people will be his people, and they will say, you are my God. Because God has changed his wife's heart. He's drowning out the names of her former lovers, and this time their home together will serve their marriage, not damage it. You know, the new earth, our new home, I think it's like this. Have you ever walked into an art museum and you see these beautiful paintings on the wall? And they have these really amazing frames. They don't just put boring Ikea frames, right? Like real ornate, beautiful frames. Now I want you to imagine with me that you walk into an art museum and you, your eyes catch it. You see the most stunning picture frame you have ever seen in your entire life. You, you walk up to it, you can't rip your eyes off of it, the details, the craftsmanship. You're looking at this, this picture frame and you say, wow, this right here is a masterpiece. And you realize in that moment that this frame is so good that there's no picture that can be in center of it that it would serve it. 
right? The picture frame would distract from the photo or the painting. But out of duty, you say, well, I need to look at what's at the center of this picture, right? So there's this beauty that is in the picture frame, and it's awakening something in your heart. It stirs something, something that's inside every single one of us that loves beauty. But you tear your eyes away from it, and you take your eyes and draw it to the center of the photo. And what you see there awakens something in your heart that beauty never could. It grabs you. It stirs affection. It grabs your whole heart because this picture frame is a frame of your wedding photo. And right there at the center of the photo, you are looking at your spouse's face. You realize that all the beauty in the world can awaken things in your heart, but only your spouse can awaken this. The new earth, the new heavens, what we're going to have is stunning. It's a masterpiece. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more pain. There's no more cancer. There's no more hurricanes. There's no more sin and misunderstandings. No more division between friends, uh, friends or, or relationships. Everything is right. And it's right for us to want it, to long for it, to think about it, to know that that's in our future and it's ours. But all of that is just a frame for the marriage in the middle. That's the treasure of heaven. God and us together. The new earth will be a frame for what is actually beautiful. God and his people together. It's not here yet, church, but it's yours. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what part of story you're in today, but this right here is yours. God is taking everything and he's rewriting it. Now in chapter 3, we just come crashing down. It takes us back from this future prophecy, the rewriting of the narrative of God's people, his love story, and it crashes us back to the time of the original audience. And God gives his people, through Hosea, another picture. So this is back to their day. As as Hosea is prophesying, God interrupts this and and brings it back to his original audience. And, And there's something here for us to see, too, about who God is and what he's going to do. Let me read chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, that's Hosea, and a homer and a lethith of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. See, here we come crashing back to the time of the prophet Hosea and the adulterous people of God. They haven't walked through the door of hope yet. They haven't been engaged once again to God. They haven't forgotten their former lovers, and there's no new home on their horizon. Instead, the people of God in this passage find themselves on the cusp of the wilderness. 
all those wonderful promises that we just read would have seemed odd to them because we have the benefit on being on this side of the cross and looking back. Right? We, we look at this and we say, I see the door of hope. It's Jesus Christ. I see the captivity of sin. I see the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. I, I see how God's taking away my former lovers from my mouth. He's, he's transforming me. I'm not there yet, but he's making me there. He's going to finish what he started. We see all that. But the original hearers, they didn't have that benefit. So God goes back to Hosea as he images out what's happening between God and his people through his marriage to Gomer. And he's going to continue to give Israel pictures of what this is going to look like. Right? He's going to show them things about what kind of husband he is. So God tells Hosea to go again and love his adulterous wife. Hosea is once again acting out what God's doing with his people. And the absurdity of Israel turning away from God is highlighted. That they're not only turned to other gods, but they love cakes of raisins. What is that about? I mean, raisins are the saddest fruit of all. Right? They're just, they're just disappointing grapes. It's ridiculous. And yet, here we see ourselves in the story, don't we? See, I, I, I read commentaries on it. I don't think anyone could give me an accurate, like, hey, we know what the cakes of raisin are. They're, they're all unsure, but I think it's suffice to just note this. Our sin is insane. It, it's insane. Instead of loving God, our sin will love anything, even cakes of raisins. And maybe you find yourself this morning loving something as ridiculous as this. Maybe it's the team of players that play a sport, and they don't even know your name. They, they don't even know you, but, but man, they have just their hand on the steering wheel of your heart. And if things don't go right, they yank that wheel, and you find your emotions going. Listen, it sounds funny, but as a pastor, it is a concern that there, there's potentially more spontaneous and loud and authentic worship and praise on a Saturday than there is on a Sunday morning. Maybe that's not it for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's the number that's on the scale in your bathroom. Maybe, maybe it's pixels on a screen. Or it's the amount of matches that you get on that app. Or it's the high score in that game or how your fantasy football team performed. See, our sin doesn't seem less absurd as cakes of raisins, does it? If you wrote it down and put it in Scripture, we'd all be ashamed of what's written. We find that we're very much like Gomer in this story, very much like God's people. But church, take heart. Remember, God's rewriting the story. We're not told how Gomer became enslaved, but we find Hosea must go and purchase his wife back from another. So he does. He buys his wife. And in this, God's people get a picture of what God will do for them. See, they may not know the specifics, but they know the picture of the husband they have is one who will pay a price to have his bride again. Hosea used silver and barley, and God used his precious blood. Hosea tells his wife that she must be faithful for a time because in verse 4, God will do the same thing with his people as they are in exile. 
And all this will lead to verse 5. God's people will return. Their heart is completely his. God is showing through the life of Hosea that all we just seen in chapter 2. He's giving his people a picture of what this is going to look like. For those who were faithful in the time of Hosea, that prophecy would have given hope as they clung forward in the midst of captivity. For years to come, as the nation of Israel swept by nation to nation, the faithful would have looked back on these words and hoped, not knowing what it would look like, but knowing that the husband's going to come back and buy his bride. After hearing all of what God is going to do, the nation of Israel will be encouraged by that, and, and I want us to take a moment. After hearing that God is rewriting his story of love, that he turns the valley of trouble into the door of hope, that, that he's going to change his, his bride's affections and desires, that he's going to uh, do a new captivity and pull her through the door of hope into freedom, that, that he has a wedding planned before us. How does that sit on your heart today? How does that affect your thoughts? I want us to take a moment and not only marvel at what this says about our God and the kind of husband we have, but I want us to find ourselves in the story this morning. So I want you to imagine with me. I want you to imagine that you're not here, you're at home. And you get a wedding invitation. And you open it up and you look at it and it's a wedding invitation to your own wedding. Now, in this scenario, you knew you were engaged. So your spouse-to-be must have thought, wow, this will be sweet or funny or cute. I'm going to send them a wedding invitation to our own wedding. Maybe they want to keep it as a keepsake. And, and so you take it and you do what we do with all treasures. You put it on your refrigerator right next to the pizza menu. And as the days go by, it continues to catch your eye. That piece of paper seems to have power that no little piece of paper should actually have. It gives you smiles. It builds excitement. It reminds you of what is surely coming. And you long for that day. Speaking of which, when is that wedding? That thought comes crashing to you one morning as you lay in bed. You wake up and realize, I, I don't think I ever had that conversation with my fiance. We never picked a date. So you get out of your bed, you're groggy, you're, you're rushing to the refrigerator, you're bouncing into the walls. You rip it off and you look at that wedding invitation and you notice two very surprising things. One, there is no date because this is a surprise wedding. You don't know when it's going to happen. Two, on the wedding invitation, it says you must bring this invitation to everyone. Tell absolutely everyone. Bring them. Invite everyone to the wedding. And the wedding can't take place until everyone who's supposed to be there gets their invitation. Brothers and sisters, see yourself in the narrative of Scripture. Be swept up in the love story of God and his people. Right now, we are living out what we just read in Hosea. God has opened a door of hope through the one man who became sin for all. We are betrothed to God, and he's romancing us into forgetting our former lovers. He's preparing a new home for us to dwell together with him. And right now, we have a strange wedding invitation, one with no date and a call to invite as many as we can. The wedding can't happen until the bride is fully ready. So we must get ready, church. The bride is the complete people of God. And we don't know the number, so we must keep inviting. 
We must go to everyone we see with this gospel invitation. We must go to everyone we see and say, there is a door of hope in Jesus Christ, and I want to invite you to walk through it. And as they do, one day, this wonderful thing will happen. The last wedding invitation will be handed out. And the fullness of God's bride will be gathered. Church, we must get ready for this day by gathering the bride. And not only must we invite everyone, but the bride must also be dressed for a wedding. She's throwing off her sin. She's adorning herself of good works and righteousness. She's becoming new. She's forgetting the names of her former lovers. Church, as you resist your sin, you are rejecting your past, the vestiges of your former lovers. You are moving forward towards that altar. And we don't just resist our sin and do the right thing, but but we go and do righteous acts and good works. The church is to go and love and to do good deeds. And as she does, she puts on her jewelry. She gets adorned in her wedding dress. And on that day, she will look beautiful. Church, we're not there yet. But this is a real story. One that has a real trajectory all of life is going somewhere and I don't want you to take my weird illustration of a wedding invitation and say that's what I'm going to stake my life on. I want you to see it in scripture. I want you to see it in Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 and 9. I want you to put your feet on the word of God and say this is sure. I want it to animate your life. I want it to help you in your fight against sin. I want it to give you boldness to invite others into the gospel. It reads like this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Church, I don't want you to miss this. The two things that we have to do to get ready for the wedding is to invite people through the door of hope and to put on good works and righteousness. We go to those who are at enmity with God and we bring a message of reconciliation. We find the brokenhearted and we lift them up. We find the wounded, maybe wounded by people's hands, and we bring a touch of healing. We find those despairing and we speak hope and love. We take the far off and the lonely and we invite them in. The hungry we feed, the thirsty we give water to, the naked we clothe. We find the darkest prisons in this world and we kick the wall in and we show them the door of hope in Jesus Christ. Church, do you get it? Do you see your place in the story? 
is the bride to be holding the groom's hand, walking throughout this broken world, and together rewriting stories of redemption. That is the church. That is your life. Let it grab you. Let it take you. Church, we serve such a wonderful God. He takes the valley of truth.